2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 39 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, November the 9th. First, I talk to Steve Hughes, Managing Director of Mood Media. Mood Media is a global leader in customer experience design and implementation. The company created the background music industry in Australia more than 80 years ago. Mood Media delivers sensory branding, including retail music, digital signage, scent branding and mobile marketing to more than 500,000 active clients around the globe. The objective is to engage customers and create for them a curated, a unique experience that stimulates positive purchase decisions. In Australia, its clients include businesses of all sides and market sectors, including Myer, Kmart, The Hilton, David Jones.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Woolworths, Country Road, Freedom, Amcal, and Michael Hill. And then I talk to economist Stephen Kekoulis. He says the time is right for the Reserve Bank of Australia to cut interest rates. That, he says, is the only way to boost business investment and the economy. But first, let's talk to Steve Hughes. Okay, well, uh, Steve, tell us about Mood Media. I mean, you guys are involved in uh, retail music and uh, digital signage and uh, mobile marketing. It's an intriguing company. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, Mood's been uh, around for, for many years. Um, in fact, um, we, we kind of invented the, the background music industry over 80 years ago uh, and since then have moved into some of those um, – uh, offerings that you talk about, um, digital signage um, and, you know, the mobile marketing uh, and, you know, complex AV solutions as well. So it's, uh, yeah, interesting, very interesting industry. Um, and uh, it's getting more interesting by the day, I think.
2: Mood Media is a global company,
0: isn't it? Indeed, yes. So we're, we're we, um, present in over about 100 countries, actually, um, and – our solutions would reach out to about 150 million consumers each day which which is which is a, a lot and we we provide our solutions into 500,000 client locations around the world um, so yeah we are very global
2: so the aim is to engage the customer and create a curated and unique experience for them isn't it
0: Yes, that, that's exactly right. So Moves, uh, we're, we're the world's leading in-store media solutions company. So we're basically dedicated to elevating that customer experience in-store. Uh, and we do that through the, the right mix of sensorial media elements that we, you know, the sight, sound, scent, social and systems. Uh, they're used to create uh, emotional connections between brands and consumers. Uh, I suppose more, more simply put, we, we help put people in the mood to buy
2: so who are your clients?
0: Oh, there's, a, oh, there's, a, there's a who's who of the retail world, uh, and they do vary uh, across all, all, the, all the, the segments of the market uh, from anything from fashion, grocery, DIY brands, car dealerships, gyms, hotels, finance, uh, a whole lot more. Um, kind of brands we work with here in Australia uh, on the fashion side, for example, we, we, we work with uh, Country Roads. Orton, Bardo, Lululemon. Uh, we work the, with the two large department stores, Meyer and David Jones. Uh, we support uh, Woolworths Grocery Stores uh, in the health sector, Amco and Booper uh, And uh, yeah, lots of others besides. Tell us about the technology. Yeah, the technology is, is proprietary based. So both, in particular for, for the, the music side and, and the visual side, they're systems that are uh, so that's where most of Mood's intellectual property resides is around the, our database. I mean, the, from the music side, our database, music database, was, was sort of obviously predates, well, and truly predates iTunes uh, and would have, I guess, more tracks than iTunes may have still. Um, so we were kind of the iTunes before iTunes became iTunes. Uh, and what that allows us to do is program any track at all that that's pretty much exists in the world. Uh, to create playlists, so I can maybe talk about, about playlists a bit later on. But, but the, the technology is designed such that it's a commercial-grade uh, machine that we use in most of our uh, outlets, so that that can be updated uh, online, or it could also be updated via a, a disc, not a CD, more of a, a data disc. Um, we still have um, a retailer struggling to get online these days, so that that sort of and, and back in the old days, um, in fact, that technology was was tape. From you know, and tapes moved to CD, and, and CDs moved to online. So you can see the progression of the technology that's happened. But what's remained consistent is is the database that's used and grown around the delivery to those to those um, uh, to the technology uh, on the sites. that's all the visuals, we have a content management system uh, that is. Works very effectively. I can talk a bit more about that later on, but yeah, it's proprietary technology, uh, and it's um, it works pretty well. It's commercial grade and is used in in hundreds of thousands of locations around the world. Tell us about the content management system. Yes, um, there's a lot. There's a lot of content management systems around around the world. I suppose what makes ours uh, unique, we think, uh, is that it's easier to use. So, for example, if you were a retailer and you wanted to uh, put up some images or video on a screen, uh, what it allows you to do is pretty much sort of drag and drop, if you like, into into the software system uh, and then publish and then the images will appear on the screen. And And the, because these the CMS systems are online, what you're able to do is con- control quite a larger state of screens, uh, potentially hundreds of screens in hundreds of locations or even thousands. So the the idea and the power uh, for, around that is that retailers can change the images and, and what they're wanting to push out onto the screens pretty much with the click of a button.
2: Do the retailers manage it themselves or do you do it for them?
0: Yeah, uh, it's uh, a bit of both. Uh, we've got some customers that rely purely on us being able to do that for them. And we've also got customers that like to take that control themselves. And literally, um, once they've got the system deployed, they they um, manage it themselves. Obviously, we're there as support for anything, any questions or issues. Uh, so, yeah, it just varies. I think it depends on the comfort level of the client that we, uh, we, we, we work with.
2: How much demand is there for this?
0: Of the offerings and solutions we provide, it, it would be the – uh, most demanding now. It's it's growing much quicker than any other part of, of of our offering. And I think if you if you walk down the street and go into shops now, it's difficult to find a shop that doesn't have a screen in it. <laughs> um, and I, I guess that's happened because the you know the, the cost of actually buying a screen these days. Uh, is, is now much lower than it obviously used to be. Um, we've done this for, for, you know, more than a decade. When we first started to do it, you know, you had older plasma screens that were, I think, the, I remember a price being up to like $10,000 for a screen. The, the price of those screens now is, is of, you know, almost a tenth of that. Uh, and obviously the different size screens and, and the way screens can be used in store has become uh, far more interesting. And, you know, LED as well. So the demand is, is certainly there uh, because retailers can see that visual content in store is a pretty powerful medium.
2: But the business model extends to other sectors. You're
0: also in healthcare and hotels. Yes, uh, hotels, obviously there's, there's lots of uses for that in terms of either informing people where to go, agendas for meetings that are taking place with, with visitors, that kind of thing, promoting uh, the brand itself. Health is a, is a similar thing. Health is is interesting because you can utilise, um, you know, the combination of of well, you can utilise the combination of audio and visual for any client. But thinking more more specifically about health, uh, you have music that can be used to sort of kind of make people feel a little bit bored, saying you know, doctors, surgeries, that kind of thing. Um, you can use the the combination of of the audio and the visuals to to promote. Services to to pass information uh, to to people, um, you know, useful information, and obviously you can use it to to promote the products as well that that, that are sold. Uh, for us, um, we support both uh, both Booper and Amcal in their retail outlets, and they actually what we haven't really talked about is um, in combination with with audio um, is is the experience of in-store radio, so messages that get interspersed between the music tracks in store and uh, amcal for example we support those guys and, and they have a, a radio solution where they look to promote certain products and services within their store and the reason that works well is that um when you're when you're in the store and given a message it, it it's obviously instant if you take it in and potentially there's a good chance that the consumer will go oh, yes yeah, good idea i'll i'll um Doctor, I'll ask about that, and I'll, I'll possibly buy that. So it's pretty powerful. I mean, Woolworths also use that in their grocery stores uh, to promote products. Uh, again, we support Woolworths. So the messaging component of the install the install radio solution is is very powerful as well. So it's, it's not just the audio; it's, it's the it's, so it's not just the visual; it's the audio component as well. So,
2: what are the big trends in
0: this area? Uh, well, in terms of the of the market or the products or or just generally.
2: Just generally. Uh,
0: I think it's um, a broad question. I, I think that um, it depends on who, what, what market segment we're looking at. One of the things we're seeing recently, we, we are just about to deploy a, a very interesting um, digital audio solution for a car dealership uh, or for a company, a car manufacturer with, with hundreds of dealerships in Australia. Uh, and we've, we've done this for both uh, Europe and, and the U.S. And so that, that's interesting because what they're, what they're trying to do there is have a, a journey. So you enter the showroom and you go through like a digital uh, marketing journey, if you like. Um, you know, you, you'll see a screen on the way in that might promote the brand and the product. There'll be some interactive screens there that might help you choose the car, you know, your ideal car. There'll be some audio in the background, obviously making sure that that the ambience of the showroom um, it, it works well. Um, and there's you know potentially screens that might sh- celebrate the fact you bought a new car, and your name may appear, and there might be some more fanfare music in the background as well. So you can you sort of see it's, it's quite a in- involved solution, and that's kind of where I think retailers are going. They're trying to make the experience. Um, ever more exciting, I suppose, and ever more memorable. So if you, if you go to a venue, an outlet, you, you come away remembering you've been and it's a positive experience and you're far more likely to go back then and, and have that repeat business.
2: So the big trend now is to make it more interactive?
0: There is, yes. Yeah, certainly an element of interactivity, uh, trying to engage. So it's the engagement of the customer, uh, which, which brands are looking to, to, to do now. Uh, it's not a case of just having inventory in the store anymore. It needs to, the, the whole experience needs to be made um, again memorable, as I mentioned before. If you can make it memorable, people will will lock into their mind uh, and they'll talk about it as well. They'll talk about that memory that they had, their experience that they had with friends, and, and then that you know, enhances the brand further because obviously we're all looking for a bit of approval from our friends as to if something uh, looks good or we've made the right decision.
2: Well, Steve, it's been fascinating talking to you and wishing Mood Media all the very best. And now let's talk to economist Stephen Kukoulos. Stephen Kikoulos, uh, the RBA has missed its target again with the latest inflation figures. Uh, came out at 0.4%, means inflation is running at 1.9%, well below inflation. And uh, at the same time, uh, the RBA is, will be meeting this next week and there's little doubt about the decision. Rates are going nowhere and uh, most of the money is saying we're not going to see any movement with rates until 2020. At the same time, uh, real estate prices are going down.
1: And the latest retail figures were very disappointing. What's your reading on this? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting time. and I think you summarised it pretty well there because we do have uh, a combination of low inflation being entrenched. The September quarter numbers that were just out confirmed that not just the headline figure that you mentioned was at 1.9% in annual terms, so below the target. But the underlying measures, which strip out things like the the recent rise in petrol prices and these sorts of things, was actually lower at 1.7% for the annual figure. So we've got now, uh, we're getting close to three years where inflation's been below the bottom of the target range, and of course, well away from the midpoint of the two to three target range. Um, And that's at a time when the economy's, it's doing okay. You know, the hard numbers that we have on on GDP and unemployment are, are pretty good. But as you touched on, it's the consumer side of the economy that's under a lot of stress. Retail sales are are, are very subdued, and I think that's been generous to say subdued. And we know that from the housing market indicators, prices are continuing to uh, track lower. Uh, The auction clearance rates just in the last couple of weekends have been falling again. I think uh, my friend Shane Oliver at AMP had to change the scale on his charts. The decline was so extreme. So, um, you know, we've got this situation where, Yeah, some of the hard numbers of the economy are okay, but the forward indicators—yeah, things like housing, consumer sentiment, consumer spending—they're the ones that are turning sour. And I think, well, as you said, the RBA is on hold, but I'm wondering what it will take for them to have a bit of a rethink about whether whether the next move in rates is in fact up or not down.
2: Well, the question is, why are we having all these rosy Reserve Bank
1: forecasts? Oh, look, that's a really good question. I'll, I'll take a step back when I answer that question, because I think it's to give them some grace, if you like. They were very worried about the house price boom, if we can call it that, up until about the middle of 2017, where we saw the peak in prices. They were really concerned that that was fueling a bubble, uh, that it was seeing household debt levels increase at a very rapid pace. And they wanted to... Well, not actually, not actually hike rates to contain that. Of course, that would have been a dreadful policy. But to sort of lean against it by not trimming rates uh, to match this low inflation that we did, just discussed. Uh, and, in fact, to then implement macroprudential policies on tightening and lending from the banks, particularly for investor borrowers and, and the like. So they were, that, they were wanting just to see this concern on household debt, house prices, ease. And when they were doing that, they were reasonably confident that the bottom line economic numbers would be okay. And so they've actually got the GDP and labour market numbers reasonably well. Now, they continue to paint a very upbeat picture. And I guess, in a sense, what we're seeing is the... GDP numbers being boosted by the LNG, the gas exports coming on stream, and uh, as we know, there's a huge volume of uh, of these uh, gas exports. They're adding about a quarter of a percent to GDP. So in a sense, it's not a large amount, but it's sort of the difference between three and three and a quarter percent. So the headline numbers look quite good, but the sort of the experience that the the average. Uh, consumer out there is feeling, with weak wages, falling house prices, you know, the stock market's taken a hit the last few months, uh, that people just aren't feeling that uh, optimistic at the minute. And I think that's the, 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 I don't know, the uh, patchwork economy, if we can call it that, that the RBA is trying to deal with. Well, the issue
2: is that consumer confidence, which is actually a reading on uh, the feeling of the electorate about the government, is actually quite down as well.
1: Yes, the uh, ANZ measure... Uh, which is a weekly measure took a big hit uh, a few weeks ago. The Westpac measure, which is monthly, has been more subdued over over an extended period of time. So we consumers, while you know, we've got a job, uh, we're not getting a pay rise. Uh, while we've got a house, it's going down in value. Uh, our superannuation balances, which were looking good uh, a few months ago, are now looking a bit uh, a bit weaker. So this this um, situation for the economy it's really about the consumer now having said that we, we can't ignore what's happening uh to uh non-mining business investment and we can't ignore what's happening to public sector infrastructure they're two parts of the economy that are kicking in nicely we know that state governments in particular around the country are ramping up their expenditure and investment in uh, infrastructure things like tra- train and tram transport facilities roads are being built at a rapid pace Uh, The second airport at Sydney is now uh, starting to be built. So there's a bit of an infrastructure boom going on. And thankfully, that's occurring at this moment, because without it, you would have a a real concern on bottom line GDP. And you'd have a concern with the labour market with it.
2: Right. But I mean, the central bank really, uh, unlike most central banks, has uh, three mandates. Uh, The first is to ensure inflation remains steady and manageable. Uh, and it also has to aim for full employment and has to ensure Australia's economic prosperity and financial stability. Now, yes. I would say, based on the, what the figures are now saying, it's almost mission impossible.
1: Yes. Well, well, this is the this is the interesting thing. What we saw from other central banks, including the Fed in the U.S., but also uh, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, and and all those three central banks have been hiking interest rates, of course, over the last uh, year or two. Uh, they actually cut them to near zero to stimulate their economy. Uh, Canada's unemployment rate is at a record low, never been lower. The US is at a 40-year low. UK is at a 40-year low. They were able to stimulate their economies, get the uh, a, a case of uh, economic strength coming through. And when that happened, they've started hiking interest rates. So just a normal monetary policy cycle. And it's worked quite well. You know, if you look at the unemployment rates, you'd be pretty pleased if you're in those three countries. Here we didn't cut as much for the reasons that we just mentioned, the the RBA's concern about house prices and household debt. And here we are, we've got this dilemma that now we've got the housing cycle turning down and hurting consumer sentiment and consumer well-being, that sort of wealth effect that we were discussing, that they've got a dilemma about cutting rates. They don't want it because they fear they would just rekindle the housing boom. Uh, and all of their efforts to sort of slow the housing market down would be undone if they were to trim rates. And that's the dilemma. So it's a real problem for them. I don't know quite how they get out of it unless the economic data all of a sudden turns and turns very quickly.
2: Right. But, I mean, if things aren't going as uh, well as they like and they're already sitting on the lowest official cash rate in history, what do they do? Uh, Do they continue to jawbone the economy? or Or might they have to actually cut rates? Look, I think they should be cutting rates
1: um and when i say that people say oh what about the housing market and that's a legitimate question but i would keep in place these macroprudential restrictions on lending particularly for investors and for particularly for interest only loans so it's not that you would cut interest rates in isolation and nothing else would change i think that would be uh, that would have some risk attached to it but if they cut rates and keep the restrictive lending in place for mortgages and for household debt The lower interest rates would have a couple of effects that I think have been overlooked by many people analysing uh, how monetary policy works, and that is on business debt. We've got to remember that the business sector has just under $1 trillion of debt. You know, the business sector borrows, and so they would get a benefit from lower interest rates. Their cash flow would improve. Uh, Their hurdle for borrowing more money to um, uh, add to their capex would improve. And the, the Aussie dollar would almost certainly fall if we had an interest rate cut, and that would give the export sector an extra boost. So in a sense, the rate cut scenario is not to you know, reflate housing. In fact, on the contrary, it's not. It's to ensure that the non-consumer, non-housing parts of the economy pick up the slack that's occurring, and that would be through business investment and capital expenditure.
2: And at the same time, though, the uh, home buyers could see their borrowing capacity cut by as much as 40% because of uh, reforms that would be driven by the Hayne Royal Commission. So that would put more macroprudential uh, cuts in there,
1: wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, indeed. Well, there's no question that it's harder to get a loan today, well, the, virtually any time in the last 10 years, if not longer. Uh, the, the tightening in credit both from uh, the regulators and the Royal Commission, as you touched on, the uh, the, the likely effect of a real tightening in uh, credit will ensure that even if you want to get a loan uh, at these lower interest rates, or at these very low interest rates, you can't. The, the regulators won't just let you borrow that amount of money. You've got to have a, a higher level of proof in terms of your income and capacity to to pay and also have a buffer in case rates do go up or your income goes down. You know The, the restrictions that are on there for new borrowers is very, very tight and That's only going to continue for the next, well, year or two, I would imagine, which paints a picture where uh, almost regardless of whether interest rates are lower than they are today or higher than they are today, it'll just be really tough to get a loan. And while that's the case, the economy just muddles along in this house price fall. I won't say it intensifies, but it certainly becomes an even hotter and hotter topic. And so you would say, Stephen,
2: that uh, cutting interest rates would be a real option for the Reserve Bank with lending tightening for home buyers ensuring that uh, and home investors, meaning that uh, it won't cause a housing bubble.
1: Indeed, that, that's what I would do. I would keep the restrictions in place on lending, but I'd cut rates for the express aim of lowering the dollar and helping the export sector and also to give uh, business investment the other important part of the economy, a bit of a shot in the arm and really get the CapEx and the private sector business investment ramping up its uh, efforts to grow the economy a little more strongly.
2: Well, Stephen Coulis, thank you very much for your time. It's always a delight talking talk to you. Thank you.
1: Always a pleasure, Leon. All the best. Thank you.
2: So what's happening in the news? Well, the big question now is how will the US midterms affect the market? Deutsche Bank's chief global strategist, Binky Charter, says a clear result that is not contested by the party will lead to a rally in equities. Now, betting markets suggest that Democrats will gain control of the House, but Republicans will keep their grip on the Senate. And should that come to pass, it will make Trump's agenda harder to enact. However, this could take some time before the final outcome is known. And at this stage, we don't know whether the results will reflect a rejection of Donald Trump, or an urban-rural split that we saw in the 2016 election, but whatever the result, it won't affect the US economy. And US President Donald Trump is drafting ideas for an agreement to take his planned meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the Group of 20 summit in Argentina on November 30th to December 1st. And he told reporters that the two sides are getting much closer to doing something. Now, analysts familiar with White House discussions say any deal struck at the G20 is likely to take more the form of a temporary truce than anything that would bring a final peace in the trade war. And such a ceasefire could see a commitment to forego additional tariffs and possibly even to remove some while high-level officials negotiate a broader pact. And any of those things would in the current context be a significant achievement and would be welcomed by the markets. But, according to the Trump administration... All this would leave Beijing and Washington facing arduous negotiations ahead. In the meantime, the US-China trade war is intensifying, based on the imposed and threatened tariffs. But Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, has touted China as a champion of free trade and globalisation, and has condemned protectionism in a veiled swipe at Donald Trump, kicking off a week-long trade expo in Shanghai. Mr. Xi tried to recast his country's global image, despite it being seen as one of the world's most protectionist nations. The vision for a better world for all calls on countries to act with greater courage and actively champion openness and cooperation. It is important for all countries to open wider. Openness brings progress, while seclusion leads to backwardness. That was his speech on Monday. He said openness has become a trademark of China, decrying protectionism, isolationism and the law of a jungle, Mr G said countries should not just point fingers at others to gloss over their own problems. And to Australia. An activity across this country's construction sector fell sharply in October. The Australian Industry Group's Performance of Construction Index fell to 46.4 points in October in seasonally adjusted terms. That's down 2.9 points on the level reported in September. The drop-off was led by big declines in residential and commercial work, with apartment construction slumping to a six-year low in October as detached house building and commercial work also contracted. And that was added to weaker growth in infrastructure. So at 46.4, it indicates that activity levels across the construction sector weakened for a second consecutive month. And that was in stark contrast to what was seen throughout 2017 and earlier this year. And Australia's largest business sector, the services sector, grew at the slowest pace since early 2017 in October. The Australian Industry Group's Performance of Services Index fell to 51.1 last month. That's down 1.4 points on the September level. Now, these figures actually cast doubt as to whether the strong economic growth we saw in the first half of the year has been sustained. And the number was the lowest reading since February 2017. So, at 51.1, Activity levels still improved last month, but it had only done so marginally. And on a seasonally adjusted basis, ANZ Australian job advertisements increased 0.2% in October, following a fall of 0.7% the previous month. On an annual basis, growth slowed to 3.6% in October. That's compared to 4.7% in September. And that is the slowest growth in the ANZ Australian job ads since April 2015. And the RBA has kept rates steady at one point five per cent. The record low rate has been kept on hold for twenty five straight meetings. Still, the RBA was optimistic about the economy, saying growth would average around three and a half percent over the next two years, which would see a further reduction in the unemployment rate to be around four and three quarter percent in twenty twenty. Then again, the RBA does not have a great track record with economic forecasts. And Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has reappointed Wayne Burrs as the Chief of the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. Now Burrs became the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority Chairman in 2014. And Josh Frydenberg has appointed him for another five-year term. And that means Burrs will remain in place if Labor is elected next year as expected. Now Burrs' current term does not expire until July next year, so the reappointment was made early ahead of the May election. And at the same time, Australia's banking regulator will receive an extra $58 million. And that is critical, following the criticism from the Banking Royal Commission of APRA failing to prosecute misconduct. And to the banks. And Westpac posted flat, full-year cash earnings at $8.07 billion. That was in line with analysts' expectations, but it capped off a difficult six months to September, with earnings down 10% in the second half and higher, wholesale funding costs and cutthroat competition, shrinking the net interest margin by a substantial 12 basis points over the second half. And the Commonwealth Bank's first quarter cash profit was down 5.7% on 12 months ago, falling from 2.65 billion to 2.6 billion. And that was the result of narrowing margins due to higher borrowing costs and tougher competition in the home lending market. And the chairman of the ANZ and the Commonwealth Bank have accepted that their pursuit of profits produced poor outcomes for customers and it also, they say, contributed to bad behaviour from employees. Commonwealth Bank Chairman Catherine Livingston and Westpac Chairman Lindsay Maxted made the emissions on Wednesday in the CBA's annual general meeting and in the Westpac annual report, respectively. And ANZ has slashed the bonuses of senior ANZ executives by a combined $2 million, with the board punishing the leadership team for damage done to the bank by the Hayne Royal Commission. Chief Executive Shane Elliott was one of the hardest hit. According to the bank's annual report, his bonus was cut by almost one million dollars. His total pay fell from six point two million dollars to five point two five million, and his variable pay fell from four point one million to three point one five million. And the bank made it clear that it was taking action because of the Royal Commission. The chair of the bank's remuneration committee, Ilana Atlas, said the bonus cuts acknowledge, in their words, a significant community concern as a result of our failures highlighted in the Royal Commission. Given this has impacted our corporate reputation and economic profit, variable remuneration at all levels of ANZ has been materially reduced from the prior year, Ms Atlas wrote. It is important that accountability for these failures is reflected in the remuneration of our most senior team. There have also been pay cuts at Westpac, with its annual report revealing that 2018 short-term bonuses were cut by an average of 25%, and the 2015 long-term bonuses were forfeited in full for the third consecutive year. Westpac Chief Executive Brian Hartz's total pay was cut by 9%, from 5.5 million to 4.9 million. Now his fixed pay was maintained at 2.7 million, but he forfeited a possible 4.6 million in long-term bonuses. And hearing device manufacturer Cochlear has been hit with a patent infringement lawsuit filed by the Alfred E. Mann Foundation for Scientific Research and Advanced Bionics. Cochlear will appeal the. million US district court fine and says the infringement relates to a long-expired patent and had no ongoing impact on the company's business. It says it will lodge an appeal and a decision on the appeal is expected in approximately two years. To stay the execution of the judgment pending the outcome of the appeal, Cochlear will need to lodge a US $335 million insurance bond with the court. And Coles is suing the tax office in an attempt to claw back the $40 million it paid in fuel excise in what could prove a timely top-up for the supermarket's coffers during its first year as an independent company. In five separate applications filed with the federal court in Victoria, Kyle says that between 2014 and 2017 it paid tax on about 107 million litres of fuel, which was lost through evaporation or leakage before it could be sold to customers at its chain of Coal Express service stations. Now Coles argues that because the fuel was never sold, it should be considered to have been acquired in carrying on an enterprise, and therefore eligible for fuel tax credits worth about $40 million. Now Coles' earnings before interest and tax fell by $109 million last financial year to $1.5 billion, amid tightening profit margins. A win... In its case against the ATO could have a meaningful impact on Coal's first standalone after tax financial results, as it targets a dividend payout ratio of 80 to 90 percent. Now West Farmers is spinning off Coles, its largest business, to reposition its portfolio towards higher earnings growth, with Coles accounting for 64 percent of its capital employed while only contributing 35 percent of its earnings. West Farmers investors will vote on November the 15th whether to approve the demerger, which will see them receive one share in the new Coles company for each West Farmers share they own. And West Farmers will retain 15% of the shares in Coles, and the two companies will own the flybys loyalty business at 50/50. An online travel agency, Webjet, will buy Dubai-based business travel wholesaler Destinations of the World for $240 million. Destinations of the World operates throughout the Middle East, Europe, Asia Pacific and the Americas. It's a business-to-business platform that connects hoteliers with online travel agents, tour operators and third-party wholesalers. The acquisition, which is expected to be complete on November the 22nd, follows Webjet's acquisition of Jack Travel in 2017. Now, Webjet will be funded by a fully underwritten, accelerated, pro rata, non-renounceable entitlement offer, debt funding... And an issue of new web shares to continuing management shareholders and to destination of the world's existing private equity shareholders, Gulf Capital. And that's it for this week. And next week, we'll have a terrific interview with the Managing Director of coal mining company Montem Resources. And we're all going to be talking about the coal industry, the US-China trade dispute, and the future of coal. In the meantime, you can tune in to me on Twitter at TalkingBizBiZZ, or on Facebook Thank you for listening. Take care. Be good to one another. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much.